book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the portion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Will you pray with me? Father, in Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. And we're in awe that you, the high king of heaven, would even know us, let alone love us. But it brings you joy to call us by faith, to equip us for service, and then to send us back into the world doing the work of Christ. So with all diligence, help, diligence, help us to know our gift and how to use it with cheerfulness and gladness in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Pat. Love that new mustache. As I like to call him, Pat Macklin P.I. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to church this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 11. We'll be camped out there this morning, finishing the story, looking at the Antioch Christians and the revival and evangelism that is happening among the Greeks uh, there. Now, last week we saw how God's plan to take the gospel to the Gentile world has entered a new phase. The revival and evangelization of those in the city of Antioch uh, has now broken out, and it is clearly a work of the Spirit. We saw that certain men from Cyrene and the island of Cyprus have come over now and begin to share their faith and the gospel with these Greeks. Who knew that the gospel of Jesus would take hold uh, among pagans, among Greek people? And Barnabas is sent from Jerusalem uh, to, first of all, validate that this is consistent with what is going on in the Jerusalem church, but also uh, he's sent there to encourage them. And remember what his name means. He's the son of encouragement. And today we'll, look content, we'll continue looking at their ministry along with the ministry of some Jerusalem prophets who came to bring well-needed encouragement and exhortation and consolation. And we'll mainly look at the subject of New Testament prophecy today. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about this. What is a prophet? What does it look like for this gift to be operational in the life of the early church? So let's dive in. If we're looking closely at the text, I think the first thing that we'll see is that the key to accelerated spiritual growth is gathering around the word. The key to accelerated spiritual growth is gathering around God's word. Every word in that sentence is critical. How do you encourage a church that is growing, experiencing growing pains? How do you bring the encouragement of the Lord to that church? That is what this passage is about today. That is what this passage is going to show us. Chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Says, then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. Now, this is Barnabas. As we saw last week, he's gone to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he finds him, he brought him to Antioch. Okay? For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. Don't miss the words met with. Now, that is one word in the Greek. It's the word sunago. Sunago. It's the verbal form of the word sunagage which means synagogue. A synagogue is a place where people gather, right? And this is the verbal form of doing that. They are gathering. And who are they gathering with? Well, they're the sunago, they are sunagoing with the ecclesia, the church. The word uh, church is the word ecclesia, and it means the assembly, God's holy assembly. And so it means to gather, to congregate. And this is the context of their instruction. It is so critical and so vital for us, as we are doing this morning, to congregate, to gather around the word. And that's the key to spiritual growth. At a friend's mom, uh, many years ago, I was leaving for college, and she had lost her husband. And uh, my heart just really went out to her. Our family had gone through something very similar a few years earlier. And uh, this lady was brand new Christian. She was on fire for the Lord. What that means is that she was just excited about her faith. 
And so she began to study, diligently study the Bible, and she had her Bible study guides, and she had these things called cassette tapes. For those of you who don't know what that is, a little square, and you put it in a machine and close it, and you pull a lever, and it plays the tape, right? I know, uh, from the Paleolithic period, right? I don't even know if that's a thing, really. But uh, so, so she had this whole set of teaching tapes. She would get them from our church. She would get them from preachers like she would see on uh, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which I do not recommend whatsoever. But she was like, she was subsisting on a diet, a steady diet of this stuff. And I remember she had lost her husband. And I said to her, I said, Rhoda, uh, why don't you get in a local church? Now, she was kind of a hermit anyway. She just sort of liked to stay cooped up in her house. And she didn't like to go out much. She couldn't drive. And I said, just in the pain that you're in right now, and the suffering that you're in right now, you need the body of Christ, right? She said, she literally said this. I remember. She said, what do I need the church for? Why do I need the church? I got my teaching tapes right there. I got my Bible study guides. I have my TV preachers on VHS. That's another thing. It's like a bigger square. <laughs> goes in, you pull the lever, and it plays. And uh, she said, what do I need church for? I, I said, okay. I went off to college. I came back a year later, and she looked really weird. I mean, she was a very diligent student. She was studying the word as far as she understood it. She was getting into these teaching tapes from church, and she was learning as much as she could, but she looked really kind of strange. She had that ghostly, isolated, pioneer woman look. <laughs> right? And so I just said, okay. And I prayed for her. And I came back the next year. And you know where I saw her? I saw her at church. I went to my home church. And you know where she was? She was the administrator of the, tape, the sermon tape ministries. <laughs> like I saw her handing out tapes to people. And when I saw her, I said, Rhoda, you look great. She goes, I feel great. She looked like a normal, healthy, not isolated Christian. She no longer had that pioneer woman look. And so I'm telling you, man, it's, it's, it isn't just about us studying and becoming proficient with the content. It's about coming together, sunago, with the ecclesia, to gather and assemble with God's holy assembly. When you and I do that around the word, that is the accelerant to spiritual growth. And this is precisely what Paul teaches. Look at what Paul says here. This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. It says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. This is to be the air, the atmosphere of the church of Jesus. We have, are to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Great. But then we are continue to continue to walk in his teachings, following, obeying his teachings, being rooted and grounded and anchored in his teachings and his way, established in the faith, taught by the word, and overflowing with lives of thanksgiving and gratitude. And so they met with the church, and they were taught by the apostles and Barnabas. So the accelerant to spiritual growth is three or more people gathered around the word in intense study. Studies have shown that when three people, just three people, people have done studies on this, gather around the word for a short, usually about a, a year, that it can, people can grow quickly. As a matter of fact, in about a year with intense focused study, you can gain a proficiency with almost anything. If it's a functional skill set, think about language, right? How many of you took like Spanish or German or French or Latin in high school, right? How many of you took a language? And then as soon as you left uh, high school, you lost all of your ability to speak it. But then if you became a missionary in Guatemala, uh, I met people who have studied Spanish for four years in high school and then they became a missionary in Guatemala, and within the first year, they become proficient. Not experts, not masters, but good enough to be conversant. And with intense focused study, three or more people sitting around the word, you and I can grow in the basics. We can grow in the foundation of the faith. And that is what is going on in Antioch. And it's going to become so, impo become so important later. 
Because Antioch, this city, is now going to become the, the hub, the base out of which the global mission of the church is going to come. Number two, all believers are disciples, and all disciples are believers. Verse 26, says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, here, the term disciple is not being used of the 12. It's being used of the Christians. What is a Christian? A Christian is a believer in Jesus. A Christian is a person who is a saint, set apart, made holy in Christ. A Christian is a disciple who follows the Lord, who has been converted to Christ and now is following the Lord. This is precisely what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19. He tells the apostles. He says, go therefore, therefore go into the world and make disciples. Doing what? Well, baptizing them into the, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all the contents uh, of that I've given you. Is that what he says? No. He says, teaching them to obey all that I've given you. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So the way that we make disciples is that's it. We bring people into the faith. We welcome them into the body of Christ as they are baptized in the Holy Spirit and changed from the inside out. We baptize them, water, them in water publicly, we bring them into the faith, and we also teach them to continue to walk in Christ. And the reason I bring this up is because uh, a while back, the Navigators, or NavPress, used to publish some material that really gave the impression that a person, a disciple, was really a sort of special forces Christian, right? Like an elite special forces Christian. And that's not what the New Testament teaches, the New Testament teaches that a believer is a disciple. A disciple is a believer. As a matter of fact, Luke in particular most often uses the word disciple as synonymous with believer. Look at Acts 6, 1 and 7. Now, he uses this word disciple three times. Look how he uses it. He says, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about the 12. He's talking about believers. In Jerusalem, the 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples, believers. It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables so the word of God spread and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now this is consistently how Luke uses the word disciple interchangeably with the word believer or the word saint or Christian. So remember we said last week a Christian is a Christianoi. Christianoi is a Christ partisan. We are Christ partisans. We are of the party of Christ. He's the party that we're in. And that name, that word Christian is synonymous now with believer, disciple, saint, or follower of the way. I want to tell you, there's no such thing as a super disciple. There isn't. Like if you were hoping someday you would become a super disciple, you won't. <laughs> like you just won't. Now there is such thing as an immature disciple. There is such thing as an ignorant disciple or an underdeveloped disciple, but there's no such thing as a super disciple. But there is such thing as a mature disciple. When uh, I was 16 years old, uh, 15 or 16, I went with my mom to this place called Fishnet. Fishnet was on this farm in rural Virginia, and it was a massive Jesus festival. And they had all the latest, hottest, cutting-edge Christian rock bands there. This was when <laughs> you left. Christian contemporary music was just on the upswing. Like, it was just in its infant formative stage, right? And so we would go, and there would be thousands of people sitting on this hillside, and it was like Jesus Palooza, right? Without the drugs and the nakedness and all that, you know, the mud. But it was just like this giant Jesus festival, and these Christian Contemporary groups would come in, and these were groups like DeGarmo and Key, and Rust <laughs> and Petra. Okay, I'm really dating myself now, right? You can Google those later. Google that in cassette tape, right? And then you'll, you'll have a good time. <laughs> so I'm sitting on the hillside. I'm sitting on this blanket, and there was a preacher. They always had a preacher that came up between groups, and he would just give a little 15-minute talk. 
And I don't even know who this guy, I don't even remember who he was, but he, he got up and he gave a talk on this right here, how you're Christian, you're not a disciple yet. You're not a disciple until you become elite. Like the whole message was about praying hard enough and fasting long enough and doing enough for God so that you could become this elite disciple and graduate from being a mere believer. And at the time, when I was 15 or 16 years old, I'm sitting there writing it. I think I still have the notes that I wrote that day in a file somewhere. And I, and I wrote down, I'm going to become a disciple. <laughs> like that was my goal. I was going to become a disciple. And that guy was wrong. He was dead wrong. I already was a disciple. I was an immature baby disciple of Jesus because I was a believer, because I was a Christian and a follower of the Jesus way, right? I already was a disciple, and what I needed to do was grow up in the most holy faith. And right here, Luke means to say that these disciples who are believers are already Christian. They're Christians and they're disciples. No such thing as a super disciple. So at Antioch, the disciples, the followers, the believers in Jesus were first called Christianoi, members of the Christ party. Now more reinforcements show up from the mother church, Jerusalem, and Luke introduces us to the concept that, number three, New Testament prophets were vital to the life and health of the early church. So we begin to see what the role of the prophet is in the life of the early church. Verse 27, it says, in those days, some prophets, like a guild of prophets, New Testament prophets, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world, and this took place during the reign of Claudius. So what's he doing here? He's reminiscing. <laughs> He's reflecting on when this happened. He's writing it much later, probably uh, during the imprisonment of Paul in Acts 28. So he's looking back on this season of the church's life saying, yes, a famine did break out in Rome and Agabus got it right. Agabus was correct. This prophecy helped the church to prepare for this famine and the Antioch church ends up helping the Jerusalem church, sending them a significant gift. So let's take some time this morning to unpack prophecy and what it is in the church. First of all, let's define prophecy. What is it? Well, it is an act of God. Prophecy is an act of God, so it's not something a person can muster up. It's not something a person can conjure or marshal from within themselves. They can't do anything to get God to give them prophecy. This is from the initiative of God only. And he reveals a message through a human spokesman. So with, the, with prophecy, there's always a human mediator. There's always a person through whom God wants to get the message to an individual or groups. So there's always a recipient. And these are the three things that you look for when you look at prophecy. Prophecy could take the form of warnings, covenant lawsuit, comfort, prediction, direction. We'll talk about that in a minute. Or even judgment, Right? Prophetic oracles could be preventative, which is Isaiah, or they could be restorative, which is Jeremiah. Remember in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1 starts. Now, this is before, this is 100 years before they go into exile, and what does he say? You folks, you are headed off a cliff here. Like you're headed off a cliff into idolatry, and you need to turn around right now. Turn back to the Lord. So that is a preventative message. When is Jeremiah prophesying? Well, Jeremiah says, you've already gone off the cliff, and now God wants to bring you consolation. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. So that's Jeremiah's message, which is restoration of the people. So in the Old Testament, we see the prophetic oracles could be preventative, or they could be restorative. What about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, they were intended for the edification, encouragement, and consolation of the church. We'll talk about that in a minute. So prophets appear in the New Testament, and they are integral to the life and health of the church, but we'll talk about exactly what that means. What types of prophecy are there? The first thing we note when we open the New Testament and we read a passage like Acts chapter 11 with Agabus, the first thing that we see here is that prophecy as it is delivered in the New Testament seems to be a little different than it is in the Old Testament, right? Like the prophet doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, and then it becomes scripture. 
So it seems like it's a little bit different. Now, it actually is a carryover. I'm going to show you that it is a carryover from a function of prophets in the Old Testament, but not exactly as we might think. So prophecy was possibly the most common phenomenon in every religion in the ancient Near East. In the Jewish context, prophecy could be divided into two types. The first one is literary prophecy. Literary prophecy. Literary prophecy is doctrinal and it's directional. It's directional and it's doctrinal. What do we mean by this? Well, prophets who received and spoke forth oracles to Israel and the surrounding nations. And this results in a book that bears their name. So we're talking Isaiah, Jeremiah. Go back to the Old Testament. You can find Obadiah, Amos, uh, Hosea. So these are prophets who spoke and their oracles were written down by the scribes, the scribal guilds around them, and then collected into a book. And now we have that book. Isaiah is a collection of Isaiah's sermons. It's a collection of his prophetic-inspired oracles. So that's one form of literary prophecy. Another form would be narrative. And so uh, prophecy could take the form of warnings, covenant lawsuits, comfort, prediction, and direction, or even judgment. Prophetic oracles could be preventative or restorative, but also the literary prophet is going to deliver oracles that get collected into books later, but some of these are narratives. So when we look at Samuel, for example, the story of Samuel and his interactions with Saul and David, that's in a narrative form. So we do have some of his sermons, some of his oracles, some of the things that he delivered to both Saul and King David, uh, but we have them in a narrative form. And so that's like Deborah or Samuel or Elijah. Uh, and so when we look at the stories, for example, in First and Second Kings of Elijah and Elisha, we have some contents of his preaching, but we don't have them all. We clearly do not have them all. So these are the prophecies that end up being part of the canon, which means just the list of books in the Bible, and those books considered to be part of the ongoing progress of revelation. So let me explain that. What is an example of a directional revelation? Well, th that, as we said, is God uh, giving the nation direction, usually ethical direction, to say, come back to the covenant that I made with Moses and that I made with you, right? So that's directional. What about doctrinal? Sometimes what we see the prophet doing is actually revealing more truth than you had in the past. So, for example, let me just give you an example of this. Uh, if you wanted to sit and go through the scriptures with someone about the doctrine of hell, which the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches it both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, it's much clearer. There's a lot more about it. Uh, from the mouth of Jesus, Luke chapter 16, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, so in the New Testament, there are about 12 or 14 passages in the Gospels that you could take them to. Where would you take them to in the Old Testament if you wanted to take them through that? You could take them to the book of Psalms, which wasn't written until 1000 BC, or you could take them more specifically to Isaiah. Isaiah works this idea of shale. The word shale is their word for hell or grave. And he uses it in a variety of ways. And so, but he wrote in the 580s. Think about that. So we really don't have that doctrine revealed for a couple thousand years before Isaiah or the psalmist comes on the scene. And so the Bible is what we call progressive revelation. You can write that down. Progressive revelation. What do we mean by that? Well, you don't get everything, every doctrine in the first three chapters of Genesis. You don't get it all there. Now, some of it is there, but that, those doctrines unfold as the progress of revelation continues. Or what about Messiah? The idea of a Messiah. It's not all revealed in the first five books of the Old Testament. You have to read the rest of the prophets to see a more fully articulated view of the Messiah or Messianic prophecies. So a literary prophet is going to reveal direction, and he's going to reveal doctrine. And it's captured for us in this sacred tome we call the Bible. But there are also non-literary prophets or non-literary prophecy. And these were by prophets who served the function of delivering messages for the edification, exhortation, and comfort of Israel. So prophets who functioned this way did not leave behind any material that we can read. We don't know what the contents of their preaching was. 
Look at 1 Samuel 10, 5. 1 Samuel 10, 5 says, When you arrive at the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place prophesying. They will be preceded with harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres. Who is speaking here? This is Samuel talking to Saul. And he says, this is the sign that you've been chosen. When you go down, you're going to meet this guild of prophets. And they're going to be preceded by a, with a worship team. <laughs> like the worship team is going to come first. And then when you meet them, and then what happens is that is fulfilled, and he begins to prophesy himself. So the question is, who are these people? Who are these prophets? What are their names? What did they say? We don't know. Again, Look at the story of Obadiah, 1 Kings 18, 3. It says, Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord. And he took a hundred prophets and hid them, 50 men, to a cave. Why was he hiding them? Because the king was trying to destroy them. The king was trying to kill them. Who is Obadiah? Well, Obadiah wrote a book. And we have a book in the Old Testament. He's a literary prophet. We have a book in the Old Testament called Obadiah. And it's a collection of his oracles, a collection of his sermons. Who are the hundred prophets that he's hiding in caves? Who are they? We have no idea. We have no idea what their names are. We have no idea what they prophesied. We have no idea what the contents of their prophecy was. And I very simply want to point this out. Because we have no idea what the contents of their preaching was, if prophetic speech, a prophetic speech act in the Old Testament was not recorded for posterity, if it wasn't recorded for a succeeding generation, then A, it was not scripture, and B, it was not binding on all men of all time. And so we actually see the vast majority of Israel's prophets were non-literary prophets. They did not, their oracles, their teachings were not recorded as scripture for us. The vast majority of them likely gave directional prophecy to the church, not doctrinal. So which of these do we see functioning in the New Testament? Well, I think it's the latter. It's the second category. It's the non-literary prophets. These New Testament prophets did not leave behind any books. Now, who wrote the New Testament? The apostles and their closest inspired associates. So Luke and Mark are not apostles, but they're very close associates with Paul and Peter. So the apostles or the closest associates to those apostles who have been inspired by the Lord. But we don't have any books in the New Testament written by prophets. Even Revelation was written by who? It was written by John, who is an apostle. He is functioning as a prophet. He sure is, but he's an apostle. What's the point here? The point is, is that in the few instances in which we see prophets operating in the New Testament, they are non-literary prophets. They are giving, they're issuing direction. Now, Agabus is the proof of concept here. What does Agabus say? He said, well, a famine is coming. Does he reveal any new theological truth about God in that statement? No. He doesn't reveal anything except that there is an event that is coming that we need to prepare for. This is most often how prophets in the New Testament prophesy. And so, a few examples, the few examples we have of prophesying in the New Testament are non-literary prophets, revealing doctrine, but, but as non-literary prophets who reveal direction, edification, encouragement, consolation, and the comfort of the church. So what are the marks of true prophecy? So if somebody's going to prophesy today, are they going to reveal new doctrine to you? Do we have any new Isaiahs? Do we have any Jeremiahs? No, we don't. If someone is going to reveal God's heart for you, these are the marks of a true prophetic word. Why do we need these marks? Because there's a lot of false prophecy in the world. There are a lot of things in the world that are going under the label of prophecy or a prophetic word, and they're false. And I'm going to give you today some criteria for adjudicating that. I'm going to give you today some criteria for testing whether or not something really is from the heart of the Lord for the church, for you. So what are the marks? The first one is they tell the truth. <laughs> I mean, duh. And you know what? Furthermore, they don't weasel out of it when they get it wrong. Have <laughs> you ever seen someone do that? Like they, they, they got it wrong and then they try to weasel out of it because their prophecies turn out to be false. Moses is clear, Deuteronomy 18, 22, he says, when a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true and is not fulfilled, well, that is a message that the Lord has not spoken, right? You would think, yes, of course. 
The Lord has not spoken that message. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. What is he saying? The Lord doesn't say things that are not true. <laughs> the Lord doesn't tell you things that aren't truth. John Piper, who is one of my favorite preachers and writers, uh, John Piper is, uh, you can look him up on YouTube or Google, uh, read some of his books, they're great, his sermons are awesome, but John Piper is a charismatic Calvinist, like Wayne Grudem, you know, they both are charismatic Calvinists, which is an interesting combination, but John Piper, his heart is really to obey scripture, just what he's reading in scripture, and so when he reads that Paul says to the church, do not despise prophecy, he tries to take that literally, I mean, he tries to take that seriously. And when the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, evaluate or test all prophecy, he takes that seriously too. And he tells a heartbreaking story of a woman who came up to him and prophesied while his wife, Noel, was pregnant and uh, with their fourth kid. And she said, uh, Pastor Piper, I have something really hard from the Lord for you to hear today. He said, oh, okay, what is it? Lay it on me. And she said, the Lord says, that your wife is going to die in childbirth and your fourth child will be a girl. And he was crushed by that. He said, oh, well, well thank you. And uh, let, me, let me, I will evaluate that. I'll pray about it and we'll see if that's what the Lord is actually saying. And so when he got back to his office, he was just discombobulated. I mean, he was just turned inside out. He was saying, Lord, what is, what's the encouragement, the consolation and, and the edification in this? How is this building me up? How is this building up the body of Christ? Well, then Noel gave birth. 35 years later, she's still alive, and she gave birth to a boy. That lady was wrong. And these, these folks need to be held accountable. Listen, when a person presumes to speak for the Lord, they're going to tell the truth. They're not going to tell you something that's false because the Lord doesn't say things that are false. I had a friend who was told by a so-called visiting prophet in his little storefront church, and we were having coffee one day, and he had been out of ministry now for a few years. He had been selling car insurance. And, but back when he was the pastor of a storefront church, this so-called prophet blew into town and laid hands on him after the service and prophesied to him that he was going to pastor the largest church in the, in the area and that so many people were going to come and be a part, be a part of his flock and his influence was going to be powerful. And he's telling me about this. And I'm like, man, wow, that was false. <laughs> he goes, no, man, I'm still holding on to it. I go, what? I was like, friend, do you think it's possible that the guy just got it wrong? He got it wrong. God doesn't say things that are not true. Number two, they bear the fruit of the kingdom. So if the purported word from the Lord is controlling, manipulative, puts you in bondage, to the so-called prophet's will. I have seen this so many times where somebody shows up alleging, purporting to speak on behalf of God and what they're doing is they're actually seeking to control other people and bring them under the control of their will. This is really dangerous. But that's not the fruit of the kingdom. That's not what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 when he says prophecy is edification, it's encouragement, and it's consolation. It's for the building up of the body of Christ, for the encouraging and support of God's people who are facing trying circumstances. It's for the comfort of those who are experiencing heartbreaking losses, and they need a word of consolation in their life to hear from the heart of God. Now, you might be a false prophet if your followers end up living in your compound. I just want to say, listen, if you think you're a spokesman for the Lord and then all of the followers that you gather end up living in like on your farm, you're a false prophet. You just are. I mean, we think of people like David Koresh. Have you seen that movie? I mean, some of us lived through it. We remember that story in Waco, Texas of David Koresh who thought he was the new Messiah, the new Jesus. And the movie's great, by the way. You should watch it. But if everybody, all of your followers end up living on your compound, listen, that's not the fruit of the kingdom of God. And I say that in jest, but I had a friend, and I used to attend their Friday night, his church's Friday night services when I was young, about 16, 17 years old. And uh, he was kind of a mentor of mine, but he was going to this really raucous, I mean, this church, man, the, it was a storefront church on the campus of VCU, 
and they would just shake the walls with their worship and praise, right? But I noticed that their senior pastor, who called himself an apostle, I noticed that he wielded an unusual amount of control over them. Like, they couldn't marry someone unless he blessed it. Like, unless he gave permission for you to marry someone or date someone, you couldn't do it. And I thought, that seems like excessive control. And then I was with my friend, and he was picking up something at his house, and we were going somewhere, and I went in with him, and it was one of those kind of brownstone houses down in the fan of Richmond, Virginia, just this old house with lots of rooms. And when I went in there, I saw all the guys who attended the church were living in that house. And I asked my friend, I said, why are all the guys that attend your church living in your house? He goes, oh, man, we're, we're, we're all part of the same commune. I was like, red flag. <laughs> For sure, that's going to lead to catastrophe, spiritual and relational catastrophe. That is not the fruit of the kingdom of God. You might be a false prophet if the result of your preaching is controlling others, not releasing them to serve Christ freely. Paul said this, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. The reason Christ set you free is so that you could serve him, not to do anything that you want to do, but so that we may serve him freely in the Lord, not controlled by other people. So they bear the fruit of the kingdom. Number three, they speak consistently with revealed truth. Whatever they say is always consistent with the truth that has already been revealed. Paul says this, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he says he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. Now, Paul could not have used a word that was stronger to tie his teaching to the Old Testament. This is the word devarim. And in the Old Testament, these are called the words. So when you and I call the Ten Commandments, or actually called in Hebrew the Ten Words. Okay, so Paul is saying this. If, if this person who thinks he's a prophet or thinks he's spiritual doesn't agree with me, he's not. He's not a prophet. He's not spiritual. That's sure evidence that he's wrong. So you will recognize that this, what God has already delivered to the apostles, is the Word of God. So they speak consistently with the truth. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I attended, I attended a lot of weird churches, by the way, but uh, <laughs> I was a brand new Christian, man. I love the Lord with all my heart. And I, my Sunday church, the church I went to and fellowship with was super rock solid in the word, taught me theology, grounded me in the faith. And, uh, but I just was so excited. I wanted to go to everything. And my friends uh, attended this one church called Faith Landmark Ministries. I think it's the largest church in Virginia right now. And, uh, and they were having a guy to speak there named Kenneth Hagin. If you don't know who he is, Kenneth Hagin is the prophet of the Word of Faith movement. He's the prophet of the Word of Faith movement. And at the time, I really, I kind of knew who he was. I had a few of his teaching tapes, again, those little square things. And uh, I had a few of his teaching tapes. And my friend got me really excited to go see him, to go hear him. And I went to this church. We got there early, so we sat on the front row. And I was like, man, I had my Bible, I had my notes out, and this guy gets up to preach and teach. And let me tell you, Kenneth Hagin is a false prophet and a false teacher. He does not teach in accordance with the word. And so I'm sitting there ready to take notes. This guy didn't even open the Bible. He spent his entire time pacing the stage right in front of me telling us about a vision, a revelation that God had given him about hell. The hour-long sermon was him recounting his tour of hell that God gave him in this new revelation. And I mean, I was, I was nice about it, but I sat there, and every time I'd hear something weird or wackadoo, I would write it down. I would go, oh, that sounds weird. <laughs> and something just wasn't vibing with me, man. So later that week, my friends decided to get into a small group. One of them had grabbed the VHS, VHS uh, tape, put it in, play, hit play, and we're all sitting there watching him again, watching the same message, this tour, this revelation of hell. And I was not back then, I was, I was direct. I wasn't the calm, mild, <laughs> meek person you see in front of you today. And uh, I was way worse. Uh, and I stopped the small group study. 
and I kind of believe this was God leading me to do this. I stopped the small group study, and I said, I'm sorry, can you just push stop? And she's like, yeah, you know. And, uh, and I said, I don't understand. Am I the only person who attended that and is watching this who is thinking, this is whacked. This guy is not teaching in according with Scripture. And they're like, yeah, you're the only guy. And I never went back to that small group. So listen, anybody who claims to have a revelation from the Lord, they are going to teach in a way that is consistent with what the Word of God has already revealed. And if they don't, they're a false prophet. Number four, they glorify Christ, not themselves. Well, this is a big red flag here. This is a big red flag. If the glory, the fame, the notoriety is being transferred to the so-called prophet, then it's not of God, folks. The Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. That means that the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, He is a member of the most exclusive group in the universe. He's the third person of the Godhead. And not even He talks about Himself. Jesus said in John chapter 15, He says, when the, when the when he comes, the comforter, the paraclete, when he comes, the spirit of truth, you know what he's going to do? Who proceeds from the Father? He's going to testify about me. He will not speak of himself. He will testify about me. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is constantly trying to push you to Jesus. It's constantly trying to put Jesus in your field of view. It's constantly trying to draw your attention to the glory and the beauty and the truth of Jesus Christ. So any so-called prophet who goes out and starts the international ministries of Ryan Petty, Healy, you know, whatever it is, he's, he left, so I, I totally got him. Don't tell him that. But anybody who's just like their entire ministry is around them and their gifts and their charisma and their personality, that's a false prophet. That's just a, or at least a false application of that gift because this person will glorify, want to glorify Jesus with every microcosm in their body. And number five, they are not uh, open to evaluation. So one of the things that Paul says here very clearly in chapter 14, verse 29, right? So the mark of a true prophet is that person has to be open to evaluation. The mark of a false prophet is that they're not. And he says in chapter 14, verse 29, he says, listen, all you prophets who are claiming to reveal stuff, it has to be examined. It has to be evaluated. Uh, I had a lady who came and, and prophesied to me a few years ago. She wasn't in this church. It was another church I was a part of. And she was known for these sort of apocalyptic visions that she would have, and she would always lay them on people. And it was a real mixed bag. <laughs> like some people would say, yeah, that was kind of uh, in the neighborhood. Okay, kind of in the neighborhood is not the standard of Deuteronomy 18. And then some other people would say, I don't know, man, I, I just feel, I feel, you know, with what she told me. So then she came up to me one day in the hallway, and she just said, I have a word from the Lord for you. I was like, okay, lay it on me. Like John Piper, I was not trying to despise prophecy. I was like, okay, let me, let me have it. And she began to give me this apocalyptic vision it's hard to describe, but of me and my dad. And the whole prophecy was about how I, I needed to go back and reconcile with my dad. And, and so the, the thrust of the message, allegedly, from God was, you can't worship until you go back and reconcile with your dad. And I said, well, that's going to be kind of hard because he died when I was 14 years old. And also, we were never estranged. <laughs> so you got both things wrong. And she immediately, as soon as I said that to her, this is what she said, exactly. She goes, oh, I wonder what the spiritual meaning of it is. <laughs> I go, look, that's just weaseling out. You got it wrong, and now you're trying to weasel out of it. And I just, very kindly, I said, you know what? I will take it back. This is what I said. I will go back to my office. I will write down what you said. I'll pray about it, and I'll evaluate it. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. And she was very off-put by the fact that I said I was going to evaluate it. Listen, anybody who expects you to uncritically accept what they say to you from, as allegedly from the heart of God, that's just false. God would not do that. God says in the Word that we are to evaluate those words from the Lord, and we are to test the spirits, to test whether it was from you, just well-wishing, or whether it was from God, or actually it could be from Satan, it could be an idea that the devil planted in someone's head 
right? So we have to test the spirits. We have to discern the spirits. Now listen, I am qualified to teach you on a Sunday morning. I have the authority to do it. I've been granted the authority by God Almighty who ordained me into the pastoral ministry. I've further been granted the authority by the elder board who has called me here and, uh, and put me in the place of your senior pastor, your primary teacher on a, on a weekly basis. I also have the moral authority. With, I, listen, I'm not perfect. I fail. I sin. But with all of my heart, I try to obey the word and follow Jesus. And I have the academic authority. I have a few degrees that you don't. <laughs> right? I know Greek and Hebrew. I know that stuff. So listen, I would never stand here and bind on you uh, any teaching that would seek to control you. Never. I would never ask you to just uncritically accept every word that drips from my golden lips. You know, like I would (laughs) never ask you to do that. What I would ask you to do is take your Bible and go home and evaluate what was said on a Sunday morning because it's the word of God that is the decisive arbiter of all that is true, not your pastor not your pastor. And so anybody who expects for you to just accept uncritically what they say, ah, it's a red flag, big one. Number six, they are humble when they get it wrong. They're humble when they get it wrong. Well, sometimes people get it wrong, man. Sometimes well-meaning people, they will wish you well, hoping that that is a word or an impulse, or an impression from the Lord, and in reality, it just doesn't, it's not true. And when the person finds out that it's not true, their proper response is to say, I'm sorry, I I missed it, right? I missed this. This was evaluated, it turned out not to be God. But isn't it great when people get it right? I experienced this not too long ago. Uh, In the middle of suffering, when I had lost my voice, Uh, Several of you communicated with me. You communicated your heart for me, and it was great. It was great to get so much just support of prayer. Uh, But Daniel Hickenbottom came in my office one day, and, and, you know, Daniel, man, is just the most straight shooter. I mean, he just walks the line, and he's not weird, not most times. I don't know how he's at home, but Super super weird. Yeah, okay. Man, he just, he's so sensitive to the spirit, and he comes into my office, he's, and I'm just sitting there suffering because I could barely talk through our morning meeting. I was done for the rest of the day. And he says, man, I, for what it's worth, I'm not sure this is the Lord, but I really feel strongly in my spirit, you are going to get your voice back. And I was like, thank you, man. Thank you. A few months ago, this happened again. When I just had a really hard meeting with a couple who wanted to come in and talk with me, they wanted to chat. And they were pretty upset about some things. And what turned out was that all the stuff roiling, the controversies in our culture, were just, they were really suffering under it. They were really hurt. And they came in and just, I think, really unintentionally discharged some of that voltage in my direction. And they accused me of some things that were not true. And we tried to hug it out at the end of the meeting, a two-hour meeting, and I was there with a couple of our elders. And when we... When we left the meeting, everybody had left and I was the last one out and the office door shut behind me and I just hung my head and thought, maybe I shouldn't be doing this anymore. Maybe I've outlived my usefulness here. And I mean, I've just felt whipped, lashed. And you know what? In that moment, as I was processing those thoughts, I got an email that popped up on my phone and I almost didn't look at it. I clicked on the email, it opened up, and I read it, and it was from a young lady who used to attend our church, and she's still kind of connected to us, but she lives somewhere else now, and she said, hey, I don't know if this is the Lord or not, so there's the right spirit right there. And she said, but I'm telling you, I just have this burning impression. I just have this urgency in my spirit to communicate this to you. You're God's man. God has called you there, and God has a lot more that he's going to do in your life, and I mean... Just and I, I just started sobbing right there in the in, in the parking lot, saying, "Thank you, God. I needed this word of encouragement and edification and consolation." And then, no sooner did I get out to my jeep because I always park across 
the uh, parking lot to get a few extra steps. I got it to my Jeep. I got inside, and I got another one. A gentleman who's in our congregation, been part of our congregation for a long time, he sent me an email. He says, hey, I don't know if this is the Lord or not, but I just want you to know I have this burning impression to encourage you right now. (laughs) I just said, thank you so much. Isn't it great when people get it right? Isn't it great when people hear the heart of God being communicated in their heart for you and they communicate it to you? It's wonderful. But when people get it wrong, it's also commendable when they admit it, they take ownership of that, and they are humble. They're humble to say, okay, that wasn't the Lord. I thought it was. So conclusion. I want to encourage you this morning I want to encourage you. This is the pattern. The Spirit is alive and well in our midst. The Holy Spirit is working in your life. He's working in my life. And every time I get up on a Sunday morning, I ask the Lord, Lord, would you just take whatever I prepared and would you just communicate your heart to some people this morning and encourage them and lift them up? And we do this. We let the Spirit work in the context of the Sunago Ecclesia, right? Gathering with the faithful around God's timeless word. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you have delivered to us this sure word, this gospel, which is communicated in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it's just, it's awesome to know that you have done that. And God, we also thank you for communicating to the minds and the hearts of the people that we serve and live with in community here at this church. And God, I want to thank you for people who are encouragers. I want to thank you for people who are sensitive to the Holy Spirit. God, we, all of us, we just want that. We want to be sensitive to your spirit. We want to be sensitive to your voice. We want to be led by you. We want to know what your will is. We want to be able to discern your good, pleasing, and perfect will. Would you just help us to do that? And Lord, we also want to commit ourselves to just being in your word, gathering together around the word. And Lord, would you just help us to grow, grow strongly, grow mightily in that. And Lord, we also just pray for folks who come into into our congregation and they're new. And they're just growing in their faith. And Lord, would would you just pour the accelerant on their spiritual growth as they gather with the faithful. Thanks, God, for your voice. In Jesus' name, amen.